Romans chapter 9, uh, 9, 10, and 11 is where we are. And I've uh, offered to you that 9, 10, and 11 is a section. I have offered to you also uh, that 1, 16, and 17 are the theme of this letter. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for who? Then for who? So is the gospel calling everybody? Yes. Is that salvation for everybody? Yes. Hmm. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Now, if I ask you, uh, what was God calling? What, what was God's desire for Israel? What do you want from them? What did he require of them? What did he call them to? Yes, sir? Call them out of the world to be set apart for his purpose, to, to show the world a, a different way, and then eventually the salvation through Christ. And they said, that's a good idea. You know what? Let's all get together and leave Egypt. He kind of called them out, didn't he? Oh, wait, that's what Hosea said, wasn't it? Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Hmm. Pun intended, because, you know, he sends Mary and Joseph there with baby Jesus. Uh, but, so he sort of sets them apart. What is he calling them to? What is his requirement of them? Faith. Y'all agree with that? Yeah. Come over to Hebrews chapter 11. So we're pretty familiar with verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. But what has that got to do with ancient Israel? Well, somebody read for us verse 1 and verse 2. Go ahead, Jim, you there? Of, of Hebrews? Uh-huh, Hebrews 11. Yeah. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old came to prove Oh. So what was he calling them to? Faith. And he jumps way back to Abel. That's a long time for Israel. But all the way through from Abel, all the way 
down through the end of the chapter, what is he commending people for? Faith. What is, what is the thing that pleases him? Faith. Not faith in faith. Faith in who? 11.6. Always God's call. What was he calling them to? 11.6. Faith in him, not faith in them, faith in him. Is there any difference in that? Yes. Hmm. Hmm. Quite a bit, huh? Faith in, faith in that he said what he said and he meant what he said. Specifically, what did he say? Because, let me explain it to you, why it's impossible to please God without faith. Let me explain being sure and certain. Let me, let me explain uh, conviction and assurance. Let me, let me explain the substance and the conviction of what is hoped for and yet unseen. Let me explain that. Must believe, have faith, that God is the existing one and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So the faith, God's call always is faith. In him, he is the eternal God. in his power to keep his promises. Would you buy that? Reward, what reward did he promise? What, he, what reward did he promise ancient Israel? Yeah, to start with. I'll bless you. I'll keep you. You're going to have it great. And through you, I'm bringing the one who is the solution for righteousness and justice, forgiveness, all these things. So come over here with me to Romans chapter one because Paul told us can hold your finger in nine. But he said, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Verse five. So, inasmuch as he is an apostle to the Gentiles, but what is it, what is the call of the gospel? Verse five. Is it to obedience? It's really the call to faith. What did he tell you about the faith in, on your own terms? No, 
faith in obedience. Obedience of faith. Not obedience that comes from accomplishment. Not obedience that comes from you get things done. Let me give you the instruction and you guys just get stuff done. That's not what, that's not the gospel call at all. The gospel call is obedience, the obedience of faith or obedience from faith, faith in who or what? God, and specifically who? Jesus, because the gospel is God's message concerning who? The gospel he promised beforehand through what? Still in chapter one, probably verse three or so. The gospel he promised beforehand that is set apart and not calling people to. The gospel he promised beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures regarding who is the gospel regarding? The Son, Jesus, Christ. Jesus Christ. Now, is Jesus Christ God? Mm-hmm. When we say he's the Son of God, do we realize that's what we're saying? He is God. We're not saying he's God's little boy. We're saying he is God. So the gospel is a call to faith. What kind of faith? Obedient faith. In who or what? In the person Jesus Christ. In the person Jesus Christ as what? A Jew who lived in the first century and suffered a severe penalty under Pontius Pilate? The Son of God. Who did what? God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Faith in Jesus Christ is what? Romans chapter 5, since we mentioned Romans 5. Romans chapter 5, turn over there. He's building this case all the way through. If Abraham or David, either one or both, would have had this information, they'd have said yes, sir, and took it. Hook, line, and sinker. Built their lives on it. Faith in Jesus Christ is who? Chapter 5, verse 1, verse 2, both of those. Jesus Christ is who? What does he give us? What does he bring us? Grace. Grace? Before that, what does he bring us? Peace. Peace. Justification. Justification, peace, access or introduction to his grace. All of that, when we're talking about believe the gospel, we're talking about believe all of that. You can say death, burial, and resurrection if you want to, but it better in your mind consist of all of that. His death to cleanse us, justify us. His blood to give us peace. His eternal power as deity. Because the Father raised him from the dead. So, those are all specifics about Christianity. 
and about faith in general. But what in our minds was God calling Israel to? Now, we've already answered this, but I'm, I'm going over it. I'm going over it for a reason. What was he calling Israel to? To obedience? Hebrews 11, 6, that's not what y'all told me a while ago. So God didn't want them to obey his commands? Do you think for a second that God is against somebody taking his commands and just seeing absolutely positively all day, every day, how well they can keep them? Do you think he's against that? Not at all. He's categorically for it. Come over here with me to Isaiah chapter 1. Paul's going to quote, and I might have missed one or two, but one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, uh, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one. 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27. In three short chapters, brothers and sisters, he's going to quote Old Testament prophets, Moses, Isaiah, David, Hosea. What did I say, 27 times? 27 times. Chapters 9 through 11. And, and some of them are adjacent scriptures. If you wanted to split them up like that, then there's probably 32 or 3 or 4. But 27 times he's quoting the Old Testament. Do you remember what I told you 9, 10, and 11 basically are about? I know you went over to Isaiah 1. We're setting Isaiah 1 up a little bit, I hope. Listen, listen to this. I'm just reading some verses to you from chapter 9 here. The people of Israel, my brothers, my own race, it's not as though the word of God had failed. It's not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of promise. In order that God's purpose and election might stand... It does not therefore depend on man's effort, but on God's mercy. Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They did not know the righteousness that, came, that comes from God, but they sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, the fulfillment, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. 
That's why he brings this up. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. Did God reject his people? There is a remnant at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it's no longer by works. And if it were, grace would no longer be grace. Did Israel stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? They were broken off, Israel, because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Consider, therefore, the sternness and kindness of God. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Part of why chapter 9 through 11 is in here. So the Gentiles don't get conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. So that all Israel will be saved. Those are just statements from 9, 10, and 11. But those are main point statements. Those are purpose statements. And he's going to quote 27 Old Testament scriptures that have nothing to do with his major point statements. I don't believe that for a minute. That's not the way Paul does anything. It's not the way the Holy Spirit does anything. When you put them together, they sure don't do that. So these Old Testament scripture quotations, guess what they support? Those very statements he just gave. Either answered the questions It's not as though God's word had failed. Did God's word to ancient Israel fail? What's he trying to call them to? What's he trying to call them to? Yes, ultimately, brother. But what's he trying to call them to? Within these arguments that we've had up, what's he trying to call them to? What's the only thing that pleases God? What's the only thing he's ever called anybody to? you go back as far as Abel, faith, faith in him. Now you can say faith in that regard, and it includes obedience because God's never called anybody to faith in faith. He's called them to faith in him, which directs people's steps. God's not against anybody being picky as you want to be about stepping God's direction. You can be as rigid as you want to be about God's commandments. God's not the least bit against that. Forget we're sitting in Bible class. Forget we're in the middle of Romans. If I just said there was one thing that that God categorically abhors that people do, what would be on the top of your list? More specifically than that even. What did Israel get in the worst trouble ever for? Yes. 
And, and when somebody turns their back on God, that never happens in a vacuum. What I'm trying to say is that's never the only thing that happens, is it? When they turn their back toward God, when they don't worship God, what do they do? Idolatry. Hmm. Hmm. It is rejection of God, of God's purpose. Keeping God's commands very strictly and very rigidly, there's nothing wrong with that. If you're doing it because God is God Almighty and he said it, get after it. But what's he categorically against? You doing that to glorify your own effort, to glorify yourself. Now, when you start glorifying something, the next thing you're doing is bowing down to it. And what would you call that? Yeah, that's just worship, isn't it? Isn't it? So come over here to Isaiah chapter 1. While we're mentioning this, well, because Paul quotes from it, but I thought we'd just read, I don't know. We'll read a little bit here. Uh, This is the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, uh, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. That's 740 B.C. to about 686 B.C., so 54 years of service, preaching, and ministry here, covering a lot of country. Hear, O heavens. Hear, O heavens. Listen, O earth. I mean, he kind of just went over the Jews' head right there, didn't he? I'm talking about big time. Listen up. For the Lord has spoken. I reared up children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master and the donkey his, his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, oh, sinful nation. Loaded down with what? I mean, you thought he was talking to pagans. Loaded down with with guilt, with iniquities, with sin. A brood of evildoers. Children given to corruption. Doesn't really sound like covenant-related children of God, does it? They have forsaken the Lord. Here we are. This is quoting y'all now. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart is afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. There's no hope. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are stripped by foreigners. 
right before you, laid waste as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in the field of melons. There ain't no protection. Like a city under siege. Here's Paul's quote in 929 of Romans. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah. What happened to them along with the cities on the plain, Adma and Zoan? And... Yeah, God wiped them plumb out, didn't he? I mean, to the dust. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. Well, there ain't nobody in Judah going to agree with this. They're rich. Things are going their way. I mean, a few more savvy political moves... Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices. Here's why we make a big deal out of not just obedience. Were they offering sacrifices in obedience? Yeah, they didn't make it up. God told them to offer them. They're paying strict attention to what he said and doing it. Isn't that good? Mm Mm-mm. Because guess how they're not doing it? We'll see. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Because evidently you're doing them to accomplish something. What what am I supposed to be impressed with, God said? The dead animals? The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? What 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 would their sacrifices have been for? Could be an atonement. Two things primarily. Atonement and then worship. Devotion. God said, you've got so many, I can't count them. I have more than enough of burnt offerings, that's devotion, of rams uh, and the fat of fattened animals, I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. He has no pleasure in them? Aren't those tasks of obedience? Yeah, they, they, this is right per his instruction. But what is it he has pleasure in? What is it that pleases him? He said it negatively in Hebrews eleven six. so what's the positive? And without faith, it's impossible to please God. So what's the positive of that? What would he have pleasure in? So necessarily then, what is not accompanying these sacrifices? Oh. And when, when faith doesn't accompany them, guess what they become? At, at least an idolatrous at worst. When you come and appear before me, who asked this of you? 
God said, you think, I, you think I'm impressed with your attendance? What are we talking about? When you appear before me, who asked this of you? What, what were their sacrifices supposed to do? Were they not supposed to do them? Did he want them or not? He commanded them. But if they're offering a sacrifice for atonement, on whose terms are they doing it? It became a worthless routine. Well, whose terms are they supposed to be doing it on? God's terms. So he told them, you take this animal, you take it to this person right here, you present it to me, you do this, here's who gets whatever gets some of it, unless it's strictly for atonement and nobody gets it, it's consumed in the fires of wrath. They can be doing all the details and they ain't doing what God said yet. Because what's lacking? Necessarily, what's lacking? So Paul says, Romans 9, 10, and 11, let's don't act like this is something new. It's not new. Except the Lord had left, had left us a remnant, had left us some survivors. See, he forecast this desolation that hasn't come yet. It's quite imminent on... Uh, less than 20 years away for Israel and a while longer after that for Judah. But he's already forecasted the destruction and the desolation. Who is it, who is it that kept a faithful remnant of people? Unless there was this select group of us that I mean, we, we just made sure we did exactly everything perfect. I mean, if we wouldn't have toughed it out, if there wasn't some circle of us that just toughed it out and we just did exactly what God said all the time, is that what they did? They didn't do squat. Except for who God's people would be done. Except for God. Except for God, they'd be done. And we're going to get lots of quotations from Paul that are going to flesh all this out from Isaiah 1 all the way to chapter 65. But at any rate, I just wanted to give you a little intro there. Uh, Stop bringing, verse 13, stop bringing this uh, meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable. Why were their offerings meaningless? What did they lack? That's it. Your incense is, incense, what's that supposed to be? Remember what incense stands for? Prayers. Always. Stands for the prayers of the saints. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies, your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. My soul hates. Are those old things? God's provided? Mm-hmm. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take away, uh, take your evil deeds out of my sight. 
Stop doing wrong and learn to do right. Seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. So God tells them, you're doing, you're doing all of these things that I said, stop doing them because there's no faith. But here's what you need to do. You need to try to do harder a bunch of stuff I said. Does that make any sense? But I hear people read that that way all the time. Take away your evil deeds out of my sight. Quit doing evil stuff. Well, does God want them to quit doing evil stuff? How? By faith. Learn to do right. Does God want them to learn to do right? How? Seek justice and encourage the oppressed. Defend the case of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. That's quotation right out of the law right there. Does he want them to do that? How? Like they're going to preserve something? By faith. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Now he steps off here. Though your sins are like scarlet, are they? Yeah, does he have to go over them again? I mean, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If, if you are willing and obedient, You will eat from the best of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He just sums up Deuteronomy 28, 29, 30. The renewal of the covenant. The covenant of the blessing and cursing. The rationale again behind the law that he's given them. If you trust me, you submit to me, I'll bless you. My purpose will grow among you, and everybody will be, and the whole world will be attracted to that. And if you insist to live like the world, I will treat you like the world. It reminds them of his promise. Okay, so come back over here with me to Romans 9. So the people of Israel, what, what, all of that to underline what? God has always, always called his people to the obedience of faith. God doesn't need your obedience. He doesn't need my obedience. He doesn't need my faith. But what does faith do? Pleases him. Why would faith please him? Who is it that saved this remnant of Israel? Why? Why did he call them out of Egypt to start with? Because they were so numerous and so well behaved and so ethical and so. What's he wanting to do? Save everybody? Uh-huh. 
huh? What's this got to do with the gospel? Every bit of this points right to the gospel. Though your sins be as crimson, they shall be white as snow. I mean, are we familiar with any message from God that gives us the specific and explicit details of that? Yeah. Is that what the gospel offers? Yeah. Who were the first people to be exposed to it? Who were the first people to hear it? Who were the first people to be called by it? First to the Jew, and then for the Gentile. Because guess what the Jews are going to do with it? Until A.D. 70, primarily, not all, thousands of them didn't, but the majority and as a whole, until God elephant stomps the whole system in the city and the temple and everything in A.D. 70 with the Roman army, until that happens, guess what the Jews are doing with the gospel and people who submit themselves to it? No, the first persecutors of the church are? See, they can't, they can't just reject God. They reject God because they elevate themselves. So we're going to get into that. Uh, and I encourage you, take your book and go through there and just list out the Old Testament quotations that he gives because they tell a story because they support his points. Count and see how many you find. He'll usually say Isaiah says, or Isaiah boldly says, or Isaiah previously says, and he puts Isaiah in order. I think that's interesting. And then he'll quote Hosea a couple of times. He's going to quote Moses several times. He'll quote David, Psalm 19, at least once. Uh, Who's familiar with those passages? Whose passages are those? The Jews. Why is he giving those passages? Why is he reminding those passages? Why is he reminding Christian Jews of those passages? You got to remember... You got to remember, got to remember, this is not something new. It's a new message with a new Savior, and it's specific and it's certain, but the principle of it is not new. What was Israel's greatest fault? They couldn't hear the message. They heard the instruction, kill a boat, kill a goat, kill a bull, kill a calf. They heard the instruction. They couldn't hear the message. They they couldn't hear the message. And then it fits why he would give us all this. So that's a little bit of a foundation. Let's pray. (coughs) Almighty God and Father in heaven, we love you, Father, for who you are. We thank you, Father, for telling us the truth. We thank you, Father, for 
for reminding us that you have always had in your heart and in your mind the plan of Jesus Christ, that everything you've ever said or done in Scripture points to and undergirds the simple fact that nobody finds peace, nobody finds hope, nobody finds life outside of you. And nobody comes to you, Father, except through faith that is on your terms. And your promises, your promises are so powerful that they well up and they produce faith within us. When we hear your promises, Father, and we attribute them to you, the all-powerful, eternal God, and we remember what you want and what you offer, then your promises, Father, they compel us, they persuade us, they empower us, they direct our steps, they protect our minds, they protect our hearts, they guide our feet. And it is your purpose and your plan, Father, to do this. And it has always been your purpose and your plan. And you want, Father, children who belong to you, children who are children of promise, children, children, Father, awaiting inheritance from their father. We thank you for the truth. We thank you, Father, for the place that it has in our hearts and our minds. Help us and guide us, Father. Help us and guide us through your truth and grow our lives and our understanding, Father, in any way that brings you glory and promotes your purpose on this earth. It's through Jesus who died for us and intercedes now on our behalf. We pray these things. Amen.